Welcome to another brand new episode of the Story Bar podcast. This is your host Garima. Ever since I realized that I wanted to tell stories of ordinary people and celebrate their life, I started working towards it, taking one step at a time. Understanding how you tell the story makes a huge difference. And in this journey, I came across Lawrence Grobel. Well, to call him a writer, journalist, storyteller or interviewer would be an injustice I believe to his extraordinary experience in interviewing some of the most celebrated names in modern times. When I read the art of the interview, I was amazed by his fearless approach in asking the important questions, his genuine interest in people, sincerity in research, discipline in his art. and spontaneity in his persona. Why would anyone trust him to share the most intricate details of their lives on record? Just think about the spotlight on celebrities and yet, can you imagine the vulnerability? That's where Mr. Grubel truly makes a mark, bringing out the good, the bad and the ugly in his conversations. Larry Grobel is the Mozart of interviewers, said Joyce Carol Oates, and in this conversation we will get to know why. You will mostly find me listening to him in this episode because I couldn't afford to miss out on a lifetime opportunity. This has been the dream interview. We have so much to learn from him. One episode can never be enough. While you enjoy listening to him, I also request you to visit his website to understand his brilliant work. It's laurencegrobel.com. L A W R E N C E G R O B E L.com. try and understand your story tell me a bit about your roots your family where do you come from and help me understand who is lawrence grobel oh well that that's a question that could take all all day <laughs> so yes, yes. um i mean basically basically um i was born in brooklyn new york and i lived there for 9 years and probably got my sense of street smarts on the streets of new york and and mm-hmm. brooklyn mm-hmm. um i then left to go to uh uh jericho long island and uh which is about a 25 minute uh car ride from new york city uh could be an hour car ride depending on the traffic um and there it was a very different experience when when i my first 9 years i lived in an apartment on the 6th floor and the noise that put me to sleep at night was the honking of horns and the car and the traffic that was in front in the streets uh when i got to long island we we moved into a house in the suburbs mm-hmm. and it was very quiet and the sound then was of small frogs croaking and it was very hard for me to adjust and fall asleep for a while uh because it was so different but it there was a great freedom that i had growing up because uh, once i learned how to ride a bicycle mm-hmm. and got one i i i made friends we drove we rode around the development and we were very very free um you know i only had to be home for 
food. Uh, and in between I played and enjoyed myself. I was very lucky that I grew up making a friend with one, one of my friends was named Paul mm -hmm. uh, Singer and his father was a very famous artist. Mm -hmm. he, he was a, a, a bird artist uh, and he did wildlife. And I used to go to his house and, and watch Arthur Singer who did the book Birds of the World who did the book on, on the United States stamps. There was uh, 50 different birds and, and he drew them all, but I got to watch him do it. Mm -hmm. And he smoked his pipe and drew and was so opposite of anything I saw. My father went to work. He was in the uh, pharmaceutical business mm -hmm. um, and he drove into his work in, in the city and came back. So he left early in the morning, came back at seven o'clock at night and he was tired and, he, and from the drive and all. Paul's father stayed home the whole time, except when he went to Africa or mm -hmm. India or, or Europe to photograph birds, <laughs> then bring that back and then draw them. Right. Um, and I said, it's a pretty good life. You know, I could see if you asked me what life I would like to live, I'd like to live a life where I stayed home and did my own stuff rather than have to work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. I had a piano teacher as well when I was, 10 years old. His name was Ted Harris. And I've written about these people in my book, mm -hmm. You Show Me Yours. It's my memoir. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who were the people who influenced me? Well, Ted Harris was a, uh, a composer, mm -hmm. but he never made it. He, ne you know, he wanted, he did two, one or two songs actually got made. But other than that, he, he had like thousands of sonatas and operas and, 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 you know, different things he wrote. That never got done, but it didn't matter. He said to me once, he, he would walk, he, his pinky would go up and down like this as he listened to the music and I'm trying to play. And, and he would say, he says, you know, I had a nervous breakdown when I was one year old. He says, since then, he says, everything has been up for me. Mm -hmm. And he never, you know, he never charged more money over the years. Mm -hmm. So when my mother would pay $5 for a, a, an hour piano lesson, well, my sister continued taking lessons. I stopped after a year or two because I wasn't very good, mm -hmm. but I loved this man. And, and my sister continued. And when my sister had ch a child, she hired Ted to come teach her child. This is how many years later? He said, it's still $5 an hour. And she says, Ted, you can't live on that kind of money. He says, it'll never be different. I mean, that's, he did, money didn't mean anything to him. He had a different attitude towards life. And I loved his, his attitude. And it helped me because I ne have never done anything for money. Um, mm. I have just done my, my work. I've been paid fairly well for some of the work I've done. Mm -hmm. But uh, the work I do lately where I publish my own books, mm -hmm. that's a decision I made. I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but I made a decision mm -hmm. to do what I want to do, to write what I want to write. And uh, if I can survive that way, that's great. I don't need... Uh, a lot of luxuries. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky that I have a nice house, mm -hmm. that I have, uh, you know, a car and I have a great wife, you know, and, and uh, knock on wood, I'm, I'm happy about the way mm -hmm. things have turned out. But when I teach students, when I talk to them, and it's about if you want to be a writer, don't look for fame and fortune, you know, look inside, you know, you, you, you want to satisfy yourself, you mm -hmm. want to feel good about yourself. For me, it's writing. And I've been writing, I mean, just this morning, I woke up because I got up at two, at four in the morning because I, I'm working on a story 
and I thought of a new way of ending it. And mm -hmm. I, you know, have to turn the light on and write myself a note or I'll forget it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did, you know, my yeah. little notebook, right? Wow. Little just notes. <laughs> and I have to read this in the middle, you know, later on. But, but, um, so, so anyway, so I grew up uh, in Jericho, Long Island uh, until I was 17. Mm -hmm. And then I went to college. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I was very active. I, I was the president of my class for, for three years. Mm -hmm. I, I was the uh, editor of my, the newspaper my last year. I, I was on the yearbook. I wrote the, uh, the history of our class in the yearbook. Um, and um, I played sports. I was on the baseball team and the basketball team. Uh, so, you know, it was a fairly well-rounded education mm -hmm. and um, I had a lot of nice friends and, you know, so, and I, when I went to college, I remember I applied to schools all over the United States, mm -hmm. to Wisconsin, to Michigan, uh, Brandeis in, in Massachusetts, um, and, and uh, actually it was Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley in, in, Flor in California. I didn't know where I would get in. I got into most of them, mm -hmm. so I had to make a choice. And my mother said to me, you can go anywhere you want, but if you do go to California, you won't be able to come home during Thanksgiving or Christmas because it's too expensive to fly yeah. back and forth. Well, I took a walk with my dog and I decided college is the place you're supposed to become a man. So I'm going to grow up. I'm going to California. Wow. And then I changed, I changed from going to Berkeley to UCLA in Los Angeles because I had a, an aunt and an uncle who lived in Los Angeles. And I thought, well, once in a while, I'd appreciate a good meal mm -hmm. or, you know, they could do my clothes for me, you know, <laughs> those kind of things. But so it was interesting because that was 1964. And that was the year that, that uh, there was the riots and, and in Berkeley and the, the, the big push about the anti-war, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And had I gone to Berkeley, I'm sure I would have been an activist earlier than, than I became. Mm -hmm. um, but at UCLA, I was very lonely for the first year. I didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. I lived in a dorm. Um, and I, I was a, just really away from everybody. I knew nobody, you know, except mm -hmm. this aunt and uncle, and I hardly saw. But, um, but I was determined to, you know, find my way. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the things was I, I, I always wanted to write, I was writing. And so they had a humor magazine called Sater, S-A-T-Y-R. And I walked into their office and I said, uh, can I write for you? And they said, what do you want to write? And I wrote a something and they liked it. And so I, be, I, I was on the staff. The next year, all of the, the staff members were seniors mm -hmm. and they all graduated. And I ended up becoming the editor of the magazine as a sophomore. Mm -hmm. So I had a, I had a terrific office in, 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 right in the center of campus. It was wonderful. And, and, um, and I had a free hand. I had a budget. I could write whatever I want. Mm -hmm. I could hire anybody I want mm -hmm. and put out these magazines. Right, and, and right. They were satirical about, about the university and all. Mm -hmm. So I did that for three years, the, my last three years there. I also wrote a, a column for the newspaper. Mm -hmm. It was called From a Pair of Ragged Claws, mm -hmm. which is from a, a T.S. Eliot uh, 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 love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where he says, I could have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silences. And I thought, well, that's basically 
what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I felt like a ragged claw trying to write what I write and mm -hmm. make sense of it all. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, during my time at UCLA, I went home one, one, one time and uh, despite what my mother said, it mm -hmm. didn't cost that much to fly home. So I did go home for a, a, one, a different times. But one, one summer, I think it was the second summer I was there, um, a friend of mine, called, I got to New York. The day I arrived, my friend calls me who, who says um, that James Meredith, who was a, a black activist, he was actually uh, trying to integrate a school, I think. He got shot. He didn't get mm -hmm. killed, but he got shot in Mississippi. And they're organizing a march and Martin Luther King is going to be there and all that stuff. And he said, we have to go. We have to mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. I said, you're right. So we, we went down there. Now, my mother and father, I had arrived one, that one day. The next day, I'm leaving to go on a, a civil rights march. At that time, was dangerous. People were shooting at people. Um, so my parents said, if you go, you can't come home, blah, blah, blah. Then, you know, just right. doing what parents mm -hmm. do because mm -hmm. they were concerned. And I said, Mom, this is history. I have to go. I was very young at the time. I was like 19. Right. Uh, so we went down there and we marched mm -hmm. for, you know, uh, 15 miles a day or whatever. It was very hot. We had to have salt pills. And I wrote about it for, for the newspaper, mm -hmm. uh, for the for UCLA newspaper. But I also called in to Newsday, this newspaper that I had won a, a, an essay contest in, in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I got to meet Bobby Kennedy when he was attorney general. And I got to uh, meet the head of the FBI and all these people in Washington. It was a very big deal to, mm -hmm. to for me as a writer. I, yep. I left that part out. Yep. But anyway, so Newsday was the sponsor of that essay contest. So when, when I went back to Newsday and I said, I'm going down to uh, uh, Mississippi, and they, they, there were no reporters then. They wouldn't allow reporters on the march, so different from today. Right. But I would... I, every time we'd hit a town, I would get on the phone and I'd call Newsday and I'd tell them what was going on and then mm -hmm. it, would, it would get in the paper. I didn't get paid for that, but I was like, you know, a spy, like a, a reporting spy. Right. Um, so that was, you know, uh, when I, then the Vietnam War was a very big deal for, for all of us at that mm -hmm. age. Mm -hmm. I knew that I would not go in the army. I would rather go to jail or I'd rather go to Canada if I had to. I applied for the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I got in, and I ended up going to Africa, to Ghana, and I spent three years in Africa, and um, uh, very important years, really, because, uh, you know, I was teaching at the Ghana Institute of Journalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of my students were, were older than I was. They were, you know, some of them were, uh, they had 10 wives. They mm -hmm. was a police chief, mm -hmm. you know, and that. But, uh, but they were all come, they came from all over Africa and India mm -hmm. and they came to study and they were coming to advance. So if you were an assistant editor and you were going to be promoted to an editor, they sent you to the Institute of Journalism to study for two years. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it was or broadcasting or any of that. So I had people from South Africa, from India, from East Africa and a lot of West Africa. Mm -hmm. So it was a great experience i was very nervous i didn't know really how to teach you know i mean i was learning as i was doing it um and i got a great appreciation for my former teachers from just doing this but i liked it there i was i wrote uh, a lot and um i i ended up staying a third year uh and uh when i left ghana i uh 
spent eight months traveling east. Mm -hmm. No, traveling west, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I went to East Africa mm -hmm. and uh, I went to um, India uh, on my way back. I spent a couple of months in India. In India, I, it blew my mind. It blew my mind more than Africa even. I mean, I could, I, India was, uh, you know, I went to Udaipur. I went, I went to um, uh, uh, Jaipur. Jaipur, yes. And, uh, I, and I, you know, I think it was in Udaipur when I got off the train, or yeah, where, and, and uh, walking down the street, there were, you know, people, uh, selling things on their mats, you know, as you walk around, and mm -hmm. there was. Uh, if I could show you, I have a picture still on this. Yeah. There was. Uh, uh, it was like a dentist, it was, but he was, you know, he was. He had teeth, and he had glasses, broken glasses. So he was an eye doctor as well, and and he had a drill, an old-fashioned mm -hmm. drill, and he drilled people's teeth. And I thought, I've never seen anything like this. And I was with a friend, and we said, "Can we take a picture?" And he said, "Come back tomorrow," because he was very proud. And he didn't want it. It was messy. And then it, we came back the next day and he had lined everything up and he was, a, you know, he sat there like this. I have this picture on my, on my desk right behind me. Um, so um, that was, you know, that I remember wearing sandals once. I think it was in Jaipur mm -hmm. and I, I was getting some tea or whatever I was. And I was standing there and there were Indian people sit, uh, 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 you know, sitting around and they're looking at us and there was a cow right a big white cow <laughs> and right. i by that time i had been in india for a little bit and i i didn't even notice it was there until it defecated on my shoe <laughs> i looked down and i couldn't see my foot it was full of the cow flop and i thought wow i'm really in india now and then actually the, when we first arrived in in it was bombay then right mumbai now bombay, yes. we first arrived uh we stayed at a hostel and um so we we went to this place and we 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 um you know left our stuff there and it was early in the morning it was like four o'clock in the morning and it was the festival of ganesh that mm -hmm. that day ganesh and, yes ganesh. And, and we went to, onto the beach and i think there was a million people that came i mean i i couldn't believe what i was seeing you know and and as we were on the beach and people were carrying the images of Ganesh mm -hmm. in, into the water. And there would be some people would come with the, with the red thing, putting dots on our heads. And, yes. and I'm thinking we're here one, we're here one day and <laughs> I've already been doing something I've never seen before. Never experienced. I loved it. You know, it was mm -hmm. that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. I went to Benares or Benasi, right. And, and uh, you know, I watched, I saw the dead dogs floating in the, in, you know, the, the sea there. And, uh, oh, it was just really something. I watched funerals, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. being burned or whatever. Uh, again, things you just don't see visually anywhere else. Right. You saw that in India. Um, right. So, so uh, it, was, it was quite a good experience for me. Mm -hmm. And then I, we went up to, to Kashmir and um, uh, we, we spent time we went we lived on a houseboat for a while and that kind of thing mm -hmm. and then from there we went to um uh, uh we went to uh, nepal mm -hmm. and Kathmandu and mm -hmm. and traveled around there and and had some new experiences and uh with hong kong and then finally into japan mm -hmm. um and in japan i had met a woman mm -hmm. that i 
met the year before and uh, I went to see her. She eventually became my wife. But, but you know, at that time she was an artist. She was working there. I spent two months in Japan. She got a show there and I was staying at her home with her parents and all. And it was time for me to leave. She had to get to work. So I came back to New York. And when I got back to New York, I thought, well, I got to do something now. Now, you know, I've, I've, I've spent four years outside of America. Now, I've, you know, what am I going to do? All I wanted to do was write. So I went to Newsday, the newspaper, and I said, uh, you know, I talked to the editor of a new magazine there. And he, okay. he, he says, uh, well, he says, do you like, uh, do, you, do you know anything about airplanes? He asked me. Mm-hmm. I said, no. I said, but I could learn. And he yeah. says, uh, do you like to do research? I said, not really, but I, I could do it. He says, well, we're thinking of doing a, 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 a magazine section just on the history of aviation on Long Island. Okay. I said, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Nothing about it, but I agreed. You know, and he, he gave me the assignment, which was amazing. And I went away and for the next three weeks, I, I did all this research. I contacted people who flew at, in 1920s and flew with Lindbergh and, you know, incredible kinds of stories because almost everything happened in, in aviation. So much happened on Long Island right. that, you know, uh, the, the, the blimp that went around the first one uh, where Lindbergh first took off. I mean, I mean, all this kind of stuff happened there. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of that, but it became a great story. Yeah. And while I was doing that research, I found uh, that there were people who were building their own airplanes. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were people who were jumping out of planes, you know, the, the you know, skydiving. There were gliders. People go up in a glider and it would go around. And, and so um, I suggested to the editor, hey, why don't I write an article about the people going up in planes and the gliders and, the, and you know, all these different stories. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Especially, I heard about th- this person who built an airplane in his in his apartment in New York and couldn't get the plane out once he could built it because it was mm-hmm. too yeah you know, couldn't get through a door. Another one did the same thing in his house on Long Island and had to knock down at the back wall of his house to get it out. Great story. Another one built an airplane using lawnmower engines, two mm-hmm. engines to fly. Mm-hmm. I said, "Wow, these people are amazing!" You know, so I I had a lot of enthusiasm for these articles. Right. And also, I saw differently. Mm-hmm. I had seen a lot of the world already uh, in the four years I was gone. So I, I was looking at America in a different way, with a different eyes. And um, so I, I wrote these articles. They started publishing them. And um, and then I started doing all kinds of stories. You know, I did a story on uh, martial arts, on karate, and I did another one on transcendental meditation. And every time I did a story, I got involved in that story. Right. And then I said, Gee, maybe I could write something for the New York Times. So I went there. I said, I, I suggested a couple of articles to them. They mm-hmm. agreed. So, uh, that, so little by little, I was building up my portfolio. I was yeah. writing these stories. I was getting bylines. Um, and, uh, and then I decided, I just want to really write fiction. I want to write novels and stuff. So, and I, uh, so a friend of mine became the director of Antioch College West, which is uh, basically Antioch College is in, in um, Yellow Springs, Ohio. But mm-hmm. they opened up these branch in Los Angeles. And he was an aide director and he, he knew who I was. And he said, Larry, why don't you become my assistant director? Mm-hmm. I said, I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to just write. He says, well, you'll help me. I need to, I need to get it started. You're, you know, I like the way you think, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Right. So I agreed. I went to Los Angeles. 
and I did this, you know, for, for half, I said, I'll only work part-time because I want to write. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I started working part-time there. And then I started, and as soon as I got to Los Angeles and I got an apartment, I get a call from Newsday and the editor there says, we have, we've come up with a way to get stories out of, off of Long Island, mm -hmm. interviews with household names. Mm -hmm. I said, really? I said, okay, well, who do you have in mind? He says, we want you to try to interview Mae West. Now, Mae West was a very big movie star in the 30s and Absolutely. 40s, mm -hmm. and, um, but she was still alive, and uh, she had just made a movie called Myra Breckenridge. She mm -hmm. was like 80 years old, and um, so I found her. I, I was able to get to her, and that was my first uh, celebrity interview. I had done one in Ghana with an artist, but this was right. the first... Uh, you know household name so to speak mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and as soon as they published it and they said oh they like the way they liked it they said you i said can i do anybody they mm -hmm. said anybody that we recognize i said how about linus pauling linus mm -hmm. pauling was a scientist who who won two nobel prizes mm -hmm. um uh one was for peace and one was for science uh and they said okay then i said how about henry moore the artist he lived in england they said okay um, and then I said, this is great. So I started interviewing the, all these different people. But then what happened is household names are really famous people. And you only have a handful of artists and, and writers that are famous. Right. And that recognize. Right. Who are the famous people? Your television stars, your movie stars. Um, so that's what I ended up, you know, seeing. I saw Jane Fonda, Lucille Ball, um, you know, uh, Oh God, you know, uh, Warren Beatty. I started just talking to a lot of these famous people. Mm -hmm. They got printed, share, I did, I remember. I did, they got printed and that's, you know, how I started doing interviews. I started talking to people, but I was very nervous. You know, I would, I would sweat, you know, perspire, you know, as I'm talking to them and I'm trying to not, you know, like trying to get them to talk. I only prepared like 30 questions mm -hmm. because I didn't, couldn't think of any more. Right. But, but that was like, then I started, as I started talking to these people, I said, what would it be like to really interview them, to really spend more time with them? I only got two or three hours with them because I only needed that much time to do these interviews for, Play for Newsday. But then I thought, what if I could do an interview for Playboy? You know, mm -hmm. Playboy did these 10,000 word, 12,000 word interviews. They were long. And I remember reading, reading them when I was a kid. Uh, with Allen Ginsberg, I remember how how serious they were and and, and deep. So I was, I, how would I get into Playboy? That was really my uh, quest. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, why don't I try to interview Hugh Hefner for Newsday right. and impress him? And if he likes it, maybe I'll be able to sneak my way into Playboy. And that's what happened. I interviewed him. He he said he'll give me an hour. I ended up spending two days with him. Wow. eight hours and uh, and when the piece got published he liked it so much that he he didn't every every year he went to um, the playboy club and there was like two or three thousand people that came who were advertisers from all around the country who advertised in playboy and he would always give a speech that year the the my article came out he said he decided he's not going to give the speech he's just going to hand out my article about his what he believed and, and the publicist told me that. And he said, you, would you like to come to, mm -hmm. to that event? Mm -hmm. The editor of Playboy was going to be there. I said, I'll be there. 
and I took my portfolio with me of all the articles I had done, and, and he brings the guy over to me, Arthur Kretschmer, and I said, Mr. Kretschmer, I said, this is what I do, and how, how can I do, do this for Playboys? And because, you know, Playboy only does 12 interviews a year, and they already have their, their interviewers, and I'm a kid still, you know, I'm still pretty young, I'm in my early 20s. So he said, well, uh, the interview editor is Barry Golson, his name was, and he says, you know, give him a call. Mm -hmm. And I did. I called right that day. I said, I just, Arthur Kretschmer told me to call you. And he says, well, who are you working on? So I, I was working on about 12 different people trying to get to. And one of them was Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. He says, well, he says, we've been after Barbara Streisand for years. Nobody can get to her. But if you can get to her, we'll, we'll be interested. Wow. I called Streisand's publicist and I said, look, I know I've been trying to get you for Newsday. And that, that's syndicated in 350 magazines. But now Playboy One, that goes to 15 magazines around the world in all these languages. If right. she talks to me, she doesn't have to ever talk to anybody else. It'll be one, one shot for her. It took about six months mm -hmm. or eight months for, 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 for Barbara to finally come around to saying, okay, she'll do it. And so I get a call saying, Barbara Streisand wants to meet you. I went to see her. She was making the movie A Star is Born at the time. And um, long story short, I did get to interview her. And that interview led to me, uh, it took nine months. I, I didn't get, because I had told Barbara one thing. I said, I won't hand the interview in until you agree that we're done. Wow. Now with anybody else, anybody else I have ever talked to, we would have been done that day in the conversation. Barbara was different. Barbara was obsessed with be getting it right mm -hmm. in her mind. And so I ended up spending almost nine months with her. Uh, I would see her twice a week, sometimes three times a week. We fought a lot. Uh, her, her boyfriend at the time, John Peters, tried to buy it from me. He tried to pay me off. Mm -hmm. he, we, had a, we had a big fight. He wanted to actually fist fight with me, and I didn't, you know, of course, but, but um, it was a crazy time. And again, I wrote a whole chapter in my memoir on mm -hmm. my dealing with this because it's really interesting. And this is all behind the scenes stuff uh, with Barbara. So, uh, but anyway, it came out and she ends up being on the cover of Playboy. It was the first celebrity ever to be on the cover of Playboy. And what, what I proved to Playboy was that I was persistent mm -hmm. and that I didn't give up. And I didn't get paid until it was published. So I worked for free, basically, all that mm -hmm. time. But I knew how important it was. And sure enough, uh, after that came out, I also did Dolly Parton. And, when they, you know, and then they said, uh, they called me up one day and they said, uh, Marlon Brando has agreed to do an interview. <laughs> and uh, it's going to take you more, more time than it took strides in. It's, he's, a, you know, he's really a difficult person. Right. You want it. I said, are you kidding? <laughs> Marlon Brando, yeah, absolutely. So uh, it took me about 17 months total with Marlon Brando to, to, you know, to finally make it happen after he agreed. And, um, and then I went to his island and, and I spent 10 days alone with Marlon Brando, did this interview, came back. And, uh, and that I became, remember, you know, I remember reading in your book that he wasn't even comfortable with the tape recorder being uh, switched on. 
initially. Right. He, he didn't let me turn on the tape recorder for three days. Mm -hmm. For the first three days I was there, I would have my tape recorder. He says, no, no, we can talk. And I kept saying, and he would tell, we'd go for walks and he would tell me stories about the Godfather and the mafia and this. And I said, Marlon, Marlon, these, these are great stories. Can we hold off? Can we hold off? I'll remember it, I'll remember it. But I knew by then that nobody tells us the same story the same way the second time. Yes. The first time is the better time, you know, the more detail. So I ended up for the first three days on the island with Brando, mm -hmm. telling him all of my life story, what I've been telling you, but in much greater detail, I would tell him all these stories about Africa and witches and, you know, uh, ghost stories and, God, you know, things that happened all over. And, um, Finally, on the fourth day, I took the tape recorder with me and we were sitting outside his bungalow and I just, I didn't ask, I just, but I, I didn't hide it. I just put the tape recorder in the sand between us and I turned it on and we just started to talk and it, was, and it just, and that's what happened. And for six hours that day, six hours the next day and for the next, uh, oh, five days, I was there 10 days, about five days more, uh, I, we talked six hours a day and I got the interview. And I'm still working on that thing. I mean, I, do, I wrote a screenplay based on it and I'm still trying to get that screenplay made, you know, and I keep rewriting it. So it's been many years since then <laughs> to do it. But, but um, it's 40 years already and I'm still trying to get my, a movie made about my time with Marlon Brando. Um, but that's really how it started. I be, after Brando is when I became, I guess, a little bit famous in the journalistic world. Mm -hmm. um, because that was when um i found that anybody i ever wanted to interview would say yes because i was the person who did brando right. and i learned that with al pacino mm -hmm. when al pacino agreed to he had never done an interview an in-depth interview before and when they finally got pacino to do it i was working on steve martin at the time for playboy mm -hmm. and they called me up and they said uh can you we need you to, to do Pacino. He says, can you come to New York on Thursday? This was a Tuesday. A Wednesday, the Academy Library was closed. And that's where I went to do my research that we didn't, I wasn't on Google and the internet yet. So I said, I can't go that fast. I said, hey, you know, I'm not ready. I have to prepare. And plus I'm seeing Steve Martin. And he, they said, you don't understand this. Pacino said he'll do the interview, but only with the guy who interviewed Brando. He didn't know my name, but he, and I, that's who I became, the guy who interviewed Brando. And so I said, okay, can you pay me more money then? And they agreed. And that's how that really how my reputation became established because Pacino, he, Pacino was obsessed with Brando. Mm -hmm. He used to carry around the interview that I did uh, in Playboy in his back pocket. And he would, he would, he would just read it all the time. He would just love what Brando was talking about and have you. And, uh, so finally, when I put the book out I, uh, on my conversation with Brando, I, gave, I said, here, Al, you don't have to carry, you know, that raggedy, because he kept losing it. He says, you can you give me another copy of the interview? So now he, I had the book. Um, and so, and that book is still out. I mean, I got the rights back to it. So it's because it was published by different places. So I put it out and it's on Amazon as well. But all, all these interviews with Pacino, with that, with, with, with Brando, uh, with James Michener, Truman Capote, Ava Gardner, and Robert Evans, those are my interview books, you know, the, the, that I've done. Mm -hmm. um, and based on basically the, uh, you know, the initial Playboy interview or for a magazine interview that I did for Movie Line with Robert Evans, those, those things became, you know, my books. Mm -hmm. So that's 
uh, 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 that gets you up to my interviewing life, but okay, now I'll let you ask me another question. <laughs> that was one question. <laughs> yes, yes. So I would want to understand from you, according to you, what really helped you build that trust and connection with the people? Because if we talk about Al Pacino, he has been a very private individual. He decided to right. open up with you. Why do you think was that? What really helped you break that uh, well, well, you know, it, I get that. I get this question asked, and I, it's hard to answer it because it sounds like you're um, uh, not being very modest about things. Mm -hmm. But, but I think the real answer to that is just personality. I think that that um, people recognize something in me when I meet them that that is, uh, that lets them know rather quickly, A, that I'm prepared, very important, because I am prepared. I never go into an interview where I haven't really prepared. And when I have, it's a disaster. You know, even in my stage of life, I, I, I feel very uncomfortable not being prepared. Um, but I'm sincere. I'm not out for gossip. I'm not out to hurt you. Uh, but I'm, I'm also out to be very fair. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm going to do an interview. If it's an in-depth interview, uh, it's going to cover a lot of material. So I, I know that you're going to have to trust me. Yeah. And uh, if you don't trust me, then it's not going to let, we're not, we're only going to have one day together. Right. If, if, if you trust me, uh, I'm going to probably somewhere along the first day say to you, can I come back tomorrow? Can yeah. I, uh, can we work, you know, can we talk on the phone once in a while? Can we do, you know, and, and, and so I think a lot of it is in the very first meeting, mm -hmm. the, what's in the eyes, you know, when you meet somebody the first time, when the first time I met Warren Beatty, Beatty, extraordinarily reclusive. He never does interviews. I was surprised he agreed to see me. And this was before I did Playboy. This was for Newsday. And I went to his, he had a, a he had a penthouse, two-bedroom penthouse uh, in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and I went up there, and I was wearing my African clothing because at that time I was still comfortable wearing these long African dress, and it, you know, it looked crazy, you know, for most people. But you know, th these people, when they're talking to journalists, they're used to seeing someone in a jacket or a tie, or here I come looking like a, a complete buffoon, um, but. I was comfortable in my, with myself, you yeah. know, because that's the clothes I was comfortable with. And I remember when Warren Beatty opened the door, I just looked at him and I, you know, I was very young and, and I, 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 I pointed my finger at him and I went, Warren. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he says, come in. And we just started, we just started talking, you know what I mean? It was just, that happened with Pacino, the same thing. Pacino was a virgin when it comes to interviewing. He really <laughs> had never talked to him and he was so nervous. Um, that, but, but because I had been with Brando, I'd been, the, I'd had that experience where I let Brando say, you can't use the tape recorder for three days. And I was very frustrated. I said, I'm not going to let that happen again. So the very minute I walked into Al's place, I put my bag down. I took the tape recorder out and I, he goes, no, 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 no. He says, not yet. Not yet. He says, we're not ready to do that. I said, Al, we're just going to do it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to just turn it on and we're just going to go from here. That's the way it works. And, oh, okay, he said, I took control. That was a very important thing. It's very important to be in control of the interview, not to let the person tell you, dictate you, because if it happens right at the beginning, you're finished. That's the, you, you've established the power 
right. and, and if you give them the power, you lose the power, and then you're at their whim. And, you know, that happens sometimes. Sometimes you can't help it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, with Meryl Streep, I, I, was, I, I interviewed her when she was making a movie called Death Becomes Her. And she was being, she was in the makeup chair at six o'clock in the morning getting ready. And that's where I'm talking to her. So the person making her up is right there. Mm -hmm. Other people are around and I'm trying to get an in-depth interview out of uh, an impossible situation. And, you know, when we got to John Cazales, who was her boyfriend who died, it was, uh, you know, and now she'd married somebody else, but I, and I'm bringing him up. And so it was emotional for her to talk about that. Uh, but I knew I had to get some of the stuff Right. to talk about. Right. But so when she was called to the set, she said to me, okay, Larry, why don't you uh, come, you know, come back tomorrow. I'll give you a call. I let her, I said, okay. I didn't get her phone number. She never called. So I ended up do. I had enough material for a cover story for movie line. It would never would have been a good interview for Playboy. It wasn't, wouldn't have been long enough, but you know, I learned, I said, ah, you know, I, I didn't have control of that one. You know I mean? I, there was nothing I could do. Right. So that happened. Jake Gyllenhaal, that happened too. They only wanted to give me 20 minutes. He was mm -hmm. making the Prince of Persia. He was advertising and he had a, a New York times in, reporter coming after him and a wall street journal. So they only had a segment the time. And I'm, you know, I didn't know that until I got there. Mm -hmm. And I just said, uh, this is not working. I said, this doesn't work. And I told him that I said, I said, look, Jake, why talk to me for a few minutes and, and we won't get that much done. It won't be good for you. I would, I spent five of my 20 minutes with him. I could try to talk him into a longer thing. Mm -hmm. And he would just say, well, that's what you got. You, get, you know, I mean, it was like that kind of thing. So I had to just really do, I ended up getting another 10 or 15 minutes, but not much more. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I ended up writing a thing, my 20 minutes with Jake. I mean, I, I, I that became part of what the story was. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't have control. I had the publicist was there and they were, they were kicking me out. I hate those situations. You know, uh, I won't go on, uh, uh, you know, when they have these, uh, uh, trips for journalists, the uh, junkets kind of thing, where where you get to talk to a star for a certain period of time, and everybody has a different. Sh I, I'll never do that, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just uh, I, I need a lot of time. I need to be alone with you. If I, uh, I I need to, you know, if it's in the evening, that's great. I'll go into three in the morning with you, like I did with Dolly Parton or whatever, mm -hmm. or Joan Collins. It just, you know, you want to make it as intimate as you can. The answers to, to, to why me, it, it, it's, you know, you're getting to know me now. You'll, you, I, you know, that's the only, the, the answer is who I am. And, and, okay. and it's always different. I had, I've had a number of Playboy interviewers come talk to me mm -hmm. about what we do. And, you know, uh, some of them, I remember one guy was really nervous. Uh, he came to my house. And we was, he, he says, well, how do you do this? Hey, and, and, and he was sweating and he would take my, my napkin and wipe his forehead. Well, and, and what I ended up doing was feeling sorry for him. So I would tell him more and more stuff. And then I thought about it. I said, that's his technique. Right. His technique is and not, not that he's doing it on purpose, but that's who he is. I felt so sorry for the guy. I taught, I gave him material, you know, I, I gave him whatever, whatever I could. Um, other people, make make you know you may get offended by him i just have a guy who just wrote wrote a book about called big talk or something and he he asked me could i can i write a blurb about his book and i looked at the book 
and he's got pictures where he, he does TV interviews, I guess. And when the stars come on, he has pictures kissing these stars on the lips, you know, like, a, and I thought, who does that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not there, to, I'm not there to, to, to kiss Barbra Streisand on the lips. I'm there to, you know, find her brain. Right. So I, I, I wrote a nasty blurb and he got very upset with me. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I thought maybe we could be friends. And I said, and I felt bad, right? I felt bad that I did that. I said, okay, I'll give you something else. I said, I'm sorry. I just reacted to that. <laughs> so, you know, but I think, I think, uh, you know, my advice to, you know, people who want to do this is mm -hmm. if you have a very large ego, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. my, I have friends who are, uh, you know, they think they're, they're stars in their own right, whatever they do, but they have big egos. They cannot sublimate their egos to someone else. And, you know, I find that you have to be able to do that. I feel that, you know, I, 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 I can lose who I am and get into your story and I can listen to your story for hours and hours and hours without saying me too, me too. Right. But if you say something that I can relate to, I will tell you a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's how Dolly and I got along so well she loved African ghost stories and I had them <laughs> so she she we would she would tell me a story about going growing up in you know uh, in the woods and and uh in Tennessee and I would tell her a story you know that that all that could equal that and then and we just laughed and we enjoyed each other right. so uh that you know it's just a matter of again your personality and your your ability to not not try to show that you're any sense superior to anybody you're you're there to, you know i mean a lot of actors i know i'm smarter than them educationally you know i mean a lot of them didn't go to college a lot of them you know dropped out of high school but they had their own experiences that are different and uh, and of course you know i remember when i was with uh charlie sheen and i'm looking He's driving a new Mercedes and I'm driving an old Fiat Spider, you know, I mean, it's, and I'm thinking, how did he get that? And I got this, you know, but that's the way it is, you know, I mean, he's the one who's recognized and he's, you know, I was once with Elliot Gould and Rita Marino uh, in front of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I, Elliot had become a friend and we were walking outside and Rita was, there, and he goes over to say hello to Rita, but the paparazzi were there. And at that time, paparazzi was still dressed in tuxedos <laughs> and they were, we get a picture with and then I was standing there and one of the photographers said are you anybody <laughs> to me I, I said no I'm not I'm nobody could you mind stepping well okay and I stepped away from the picture right and that's you know what I saw that you know it was they you know the world wants to see the people they recognize mm -hmm. they don't want to see the people behind the scenes and that's fine you know, it didn't bother me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, if it bothers you, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> you yeah. want to be on that side of the camera. Definitely, definitely. Also, sir, these people have shared some very dark moments of their lives with you. When, if you had to suggest these other young journalists or other reporters, where do we really draw that line? When to not get too personal? When is there is no line. No, no, sorry. Nope, no line there. This is a difficult thing to mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. because I know like when I was in Ghana and I was teaching journalists in Ghana for three years, they took bribes, you know, you know, but it was called Sali then. People, you know, they'd go to interview somebody and uh, they, they would be given 10 CDs, $10, let's say. And, you know, that was like, okay, 
be, be nice to me, I'm nice to you. Or somebody, they do a story on a, a, a clothing ma- a, a, you know, dealer and, and they, they get to come back, oh, Mr. Grovel, look, I got a new shirt. I said, you're not supposed to take it. You're doing a story. You says, oh, but I can't afford this shirt. No, okay, I understand what you're doing. But I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, I think there are countries uh, where, you know, you have to show the article you're going to write about a famous person to that person and they get to approve it or disapprove it. I hate that. You know, that's not freedom of the press. And I, I, I just don't see it. Um, I don't think there's a line you draw when it comes to the personal stuff. I think it's a matter of how you ask it. Um, You know, I mean, if, if, if you are talking to someone whose father committed suicide or his mother beat them, Mm-hmm. Um, those are not easy things to ask, but they are important things to ask because it'll explain who they are, where they come from. And that's what your job is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you may have to ask something more general, you know, what do you think about, uh, child abuse? What do you think, you know, something like that. Holly Berry's father at the, at, a, at the dinner table once picked up their little Maltese dog and he, Threw the dog against the the wall. And he was a he would beat his mother, the the wife as well. But you know, she told me that story, and I it was horrifying. But had I not asked about what was it like growing up, and you know what what kind you know what, what kind of violence, how violent was your dad? And she would she tells this story. I never would have known that story myself. You know, some things you just have to you know find out about. And when you hear it. You don't stop it. You know what I mean? You let them talk, let them cry, let them get emotional. Uh, Elizabeth Shue's brother, they, they used to have a, a pond, like a lake where the, the, the children would all go and they would swing on ropes. Mm-hmm. And um, her, her brother, when they were older, uh, you know, went back to the lake and he got on the rope and he swung out and he, and he landed on a tree uh, and he died. He he died that way. That's not an easy thing to talk to about. And, and the same thing with James Garner. James Garner, the actor, told me that his stepmother, his father married this woman who was a terrible witch. And uh, she used to make him dress up, put on a dress yes, and yes. go to the store. And, and you know, he, he got so mad at her one time that he actually attacked her. He actually was choking her. Mm-hmm. And the father came and, the, you know, the brother and they grabbed him. And he knew that it, it, he said, if I let go of that woman, she would, she would have killed me. So, you know, so, but they put him away, but the father soon divorced the woman. You know, he realized that, you know, she, she was a bad woman, but for him to tell me that story in that kind of detail, I knew that was the, the main crux of my interview, but how did I, how to get it? You don't get those stories on the first time, day or the first hour or the, you know, it sometimes takes a long time to get to that place. And that's again because you've built up trust right. over the, the times you think. The tough part of journalism today is you don't get that much time with a su- subject. They, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, you're in and out. So you have to. I, I Sophia Loren. I, I once could have interviewed Sophia Loren, the Playboy, but they only said I could do two hours a day for three days in New York, and then she was going back to Italy. I said, "Well, can I go back to Italy with her?" She said, "No, she's on doing a movie then," and. I said, well, maybe I can get a little more time when I'm with her. No, because she's got something that a half hour before you, an hour after you. So, you know, that was it, six hours. 
I turned it down. Mm-hmm. I turned it down because I said, that's not enough time. Today, if somebody offers you six hours with anybody, you, you, that's amazing. You know, you'll, you'll grab it in a minute. And I would grab it in a minute if I was doing, you know, something like that, because I know that, you know, you don't get that kind of time anymore. Um, I was very lucky to be able to be, to interview people at a time when people understood uh, that to tell your story correctly, mm-hmm. you need time. You know, yeah. it does take time. And I was good at listening and, and preparing for James Michener, when I went to see James Michener, who wrote 50 books, many of them over a thousand pages each, and I read a lot of them, he said, uh, you know, I prepared a great deal. And, and the first day I got there, it was in Florida, and he, he said, well, we'll, go, we'll sit in my office. He says, let's, uh, you know, he said, come tomorrow, we'll start tomorrow, and, um, and I'll, I'll give you the day. And I said, I said, Mr. Michener, I said, I think I may need more than one day with you. Mm-hmm. He's, I said, I prepared a lot. And he says, well, let's just see how it goes. I said, well, I prepared 560 questions. I said, you know, it's good. And he looked at me like, what? Okay, so we, I came at eight in the morning. We, we broke for lunch. We had lunch together. Uh, we went out, then we came back. We talked till eight at night. <coughs> he says, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Same thing, eight in the morning, 12, see you the next day, five days. Five days, eight hours, you know, what, 10, 12 hours a day for five days I did with him. And then I continued with him to, because I did a, the, a, the book uh, called Conversations with Michener. Um, I continued talking to him for, for, you know, 17 years, 17 years. I, I, I kept talking to him and talking to him. And then uh, when he died, I put it out as a book, you know. So you just never know with these things, but, but you know, you have to... But, but, you know, I, when, you, when you're just asking me, when do you stop yourself, you don't stop yourself. They will stop you. When you get to an area that's too sensitive, mm-hmm. they're going to say to you, I'd rather not talk about it, or I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. John Houston said that to me on camera. When I did a, a, a Playboy Cable interview with him, mm-hmm. I already knew some of his story because I was working with him, you know, for, I did a Playboy interview, but, uh, but this was the cable. Mm-hmm. I brought up when he lost the child, I brought up a certain woman he had divorced and he would, he said, ah, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I said, okay. And I moved on. Mm-hmm. But when I wrote the book on the Houston's, I went there with him and we, you know, I went in depth with him on everything. So, you know, sometimes it's just the right time, you know, uh, and, and depending on what you're doing, if you're doing a TV thing, if you're doing a magazine piece, or if you're doing a book, you're going to get different kinds of responses and go in d- deeply in different ways right 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 and sir uh, since we are talking about this what really makes a good interview you also uh, stress a lot upon the importance of editing the role of editing in your right. the art of interview how would you describe yeah. that to us well editing is is essential i mean uh you know there are there are times in, you know, I've talked to journal, young journalists, you know, in school and, and they'll say, you know, they, they're shocked when I say, well, you can maneuver the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no. It has to be the way I said, look, I sh- I'll bring in my 2000 pages of transcript of the first interview I did with Al Pacino for Playboy, 2000 pages. It's, it's this much. Yeah. I said, how do you turn that into an article? If I just, gonna, I, there's no way I can just give it to you. I have to edit it. So what I do is I index, 
you know, when I have that much material. So everything he says about his mother, that's pages two, 12, 100, and 300. I'll take those pages. And when I ask him, tell me about your mother, I will move those answers to one thing. Then I will shape it, you know, and to make it. So my interviews always make people sound better than they are. That's, that's just the nature of it. But um, so it, editing is a, is a whole other topic really it's a, it's worthy of a book but but you know i do give some examples in my in my art of the interview of editing where i show you a, a larger piece and how i cut it down into something smaller um so uh you know to me editing is 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 crucial to 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 making a good interview um, but what i look for is I try to make sure I've read everything I can about that person. Mm -hmm. If it's a writer, most of their books, or at least the major books. If it's a actor, I'd like to see everything they've acted in. You know, if it's, you know, a scientist, I try to understand their science, but it's not always so easy. Yeah. But, I, you know, whatever it is, I, I, I do my best homework, you know, to get ready. Um, and and then what I'm trying to do is get you to tell me something that I haven't heard or read or seen before. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for something new because if it's not new, then we're just rehashing old stuff. We're rehashing things that you could find out anyway. If yeah. if you want, you know, by interviewing me, you can Google my name and you can come up with a whole bunch of things that I've done in the past or said or in the past you can go to my books mm -hmm. you can read about that stuff so there's a, a whole bunch you can do what what can i say to you or to your audience that i have never said before that's your challenge not mine to give you but it's your challenge to get um you know elliot gould the actor was was the one who really taught me that very early on and it was really i mean he was he was late for the first time we ever interviewed, you know, I ever met him. He was late in his own house. I'm alone in his house at night. The publicist was there with me and then he left and Elliot was gone and he finally comes and he starts talking, you know, he's acting a little bit weird. I guess he was stoned, you know, and whatever. And I'm just trying to talk to him and I'm from Brooklyn and he's from Brooklyn. And I would say, I finally, I said, Elliot, you know, you and I were both from Brooklyn and he would say information. And then I'd say, I, I, I know that you did some child commercials for uh, uh, chocolate syrup, information. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, well, when you were married to Barbara Streisand, well, that's information. And I didn't know what to do, you know, and I, I'm, he kept saying information, information, information. And then I realized what he was saying was, I was asking him stuff that anybody knew. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't challenging him. I wasn't interesting him. And I finally, and I didn't realize it at the time. I said to him, well, Elliot, I don't think this is working out. I said, so maybe I should come back at another time. And he said, we're talking, man. We're talking. Ask me questions. And I said, oh, okay. He's not kicking me out, um, but he's not making it easy. Yeah. And I, I have loved him for that. I have, st I have dedicated one of my books uh, I think is my, I don't know, it was the, my book of poetry or something, my Madonna paints the mustache to him. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, I actually used him as a, you know, the example of a, a, the character in my first novel, um, Catch a Fallen Star, really it, it's uh, Elliot, you know, in, in a way, you know, it's a, yes. that he, that, that there's something about him, you know, his character, his nature, the way he talked, uh, that fascinated me. 
but I still, I talked to him two days ago. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, he got my new book on, you know, the, the schemers, dreamers, mm -hmm. cheaters and believers, whatever. And, you know, and he's reading it. And I said, well, uh, I owe him, I owe him for my, for, for, for my career in a way, just from him doing that. Cause most people wouldn't say information. They'd give you the answer. Yeah. I was in Brooklyn. Yeah. I was, right. And it would be, dull it would be boring right. that i mean what makes a good interview is that it's not dull or boring mm -hmm. i mean that's that's really an answer because you know if i read if i when i look at somebody's interview i don't care if it's playboy anyplace else if i'm not if you don't catch me in the first two questions and answers i don't finish i don't go on with it because i'm already you know you have to you have to catch the person in the beginning it's like catching a fish in a way you're pulling them in mm -hmm. and then you got to keep pulling keep pulling keep making it you want every answer to the, your question your question could be banal it doesn't matter mm -hmm. but your the answer has to be interesting yeah yeah definitely and now sir help me understand this al pacino as a friend Al Pacino as a journalist. How has that journey been for you? Very tough. Very tough. No, I mean, because Al Pacino, when I first met him, I identified with him in a different way because uh, I was in his apartment and he had an old chair that I sat down in. It was a wicker chair and I, I broke it. You know, I, my, I, I sat right through the wicker chair and I said, I said, what kind of chair is this? You know, <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't that heavy. Um, and then he had a, a cup of yogurt that was on the couch and it was moldy. It was just still yogurt, and, you know, sitting on the, the arm of the couch. And he had cookies that were on the top of the refrigerator. I remember one time I walked into it was a very small apartment. I walked in by myself. He was at, I don't know, in the other room. And I, I thought I'll take a cookie, right? So I went to the top. I looked down. Every cookie had a bite in it. Every single one. Mm -hmm. So I, like, right? So I put it back. Who does that? Who eats a half a cookie that doesn't eat the other half? So, but I, I everything I he did, it, we, you know, he, he would say, "You want a cup of coffee?" I said, "Okay." He would go in to make the boil the water, and and the dish rag caught on fire from the stove. And then he's he's doing this and he's waving his arm, to, you know, trying to put the fire out. And I'm looking at him, and he made me laugh. I said, "You know, he's a buffoon." You know, this is this is the Godfather. This is you know, Don Corleone, and then he's, he's crazy. You know, so I saw. I said, this is like a guy I could, I grew up with in the streets in a way, and that's how you know I I was was with him, and we started because we hit it off like that. We became friendly, and and uh, the interview when it was published and after it came out, he would he would say, but I remember when it was finished, it was it took a long time. He said, you, you're going to leave me now? You're just going to leave me? He says, you, you've been talking to me all this time. Now you're just going to leave? I said, I got to do that. I, says, oh, I said, look, Al, after the article comes out, if you like it, we can stay friendly. You may not like it. You may not want to ever talk to me again. Came out. He, he thought it was, it was fine. And Rolling Stone asked me to interview him. I went, did, you know, so different magazines asked me over the years and I, I did it. But at, at, the more I saw him, the closer we became. And then we continued talking on the phone mm -hmm. and we had, we would talk on the phone for hours. I mean, you know, it was just like, I knew his whole life. I knew his, the, the, you know, the women he was with, how he felt with them. He, he would come here with Kathleen Quinlan or whoever he was seeing at the time, you know, uh, Diane Keaton. We used to go play Pictionary together and, you know, whatever. And so, you know, when my kids were born, Al was, you know, sending presents and flowers. And, you know, he on my kids' birthdays, he would, you know, give them little earrings or whatever it would be. You know, uh, I remember when the kids were small, he gave them an, an elaborate, uh, uh, what do you call it? 
gerbil scent, you know, with a little, and, and so, oh, hamster scent, I guess. So, you know, but that just evolved. That, that was rare, you know. I mean, my relationship with Elliot was like that. My relationship with Al was like that, um, very close. Um, and uh, it, it got to a point where, uh, you know, Al would give me all the scripts he was going to read. He says, read it. He'd ask me to comment on it and mm -hmm. give him thought. Um, so, you know, I would go to, go to his house and, you know, if he was upstairs in, in the bedroom, I would just go right up. It wasn't like I had to wait downstairs. If he was in the bath, I, he'd say, hey, Larry, come in. We'll talk. And I'd sit on the toilet and he'd sit in the bathtub and we're talking. This is not a normal journalist yes. relationship. Yes. This has become a friendship. Mm -hmm. We would, if we, sometimes we'd watch TV in his bedroom, we would both be on the bed. And this is not like a gay situation. I'm saying, I mean, you know, he knew, we knew our boundaries, but, yeah. but, you know, just like we were brothers, you know, it was like, we were just close. I felt I could go into his, his kitchen. I could open the freezer. I could take out ice cream. I could take out cake, whatever it was there. I could eat it. I didn't have to ask anybody and everybody knew that I was okay to do that, you know? Right. We played paddle tennis all the time, you know? And I would beat him as much as I could. He beat me in chess. We played chess a lot. We would get a swimming pool, we would swim, you know? So, it, you know, sometimes I'd go there and he was getting a haircut. It was a problem, you know, he says, you want a haircut? I said, no, I don't. He says, come on, let me treat you to a haircut. $200 he would pay the guy to cut hair. I pay $10, <laughs> but the guy cut my hair and I, I said, okay, didn't look any different to me, but okay, you know, but, but it was like, um, it was just one of those situations. Now, hmm. that, that went on for over 30 years, but then what happened is he asked me to be in his movie, mm -hmm. Salome, uh, uh, at that time it was called Salome, it became Wild Salome, and I went, we went, just Al and I, we flew to, to you know, first class to, to Europe, we went to London and England and Dublin, London, Paris, and we, um, you know, following Oscar Wilde's trail and all, and and I'm and being filmed the whole time. Everything we do is, is there's a camera on us, mm -hmm. and we're walking through the museums, whatever. Um, and the uh, the but how, what am I doing there? This is about King Herod, you know. This is you know during this time of Christ. What am I doing there? Well, I'm there. He says, I, I just need you around. Just, you know, just keep question, asking me questions and we'll figure it out. I said, well, you know, it, it turns out if you see the movie, you see it's a, I'm his biographer, basically. I'm there to do mm -hmm. a biography of this whole thing. So I said, if I'm going to do that, I might as well write a book about it. He said, fine. So I, I did. And every time I, he would say to me, are you going to do a job on me? Are you going to, you know, you're going to, you know, hurt me? And I said, why would I do that? I said, we're friends. I said, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. You know, this is just a, it's an insight into the making of the movie. Well, uh, when he, when I saw the, the uh, cut of the movie, the first cut was three and a half hours long and I was in it a lot. <laughs> I was in it like 40 or 50 times, you know, I said, wow, you know, I, and, but then, as he cut it down and down and down to a 90 minute movie, I get cut out of almost all of it. I'm still there, but you know, I think I talked twice, you know, where before I was like, we were talking on the plane, we're talking on the train, <laughs> all this stuff. Um, but that's fine. I mean, it, that, I, uh, that was just uh, he, what he needed to do to, to get the movie done. But when um, I got a contract, uh, I got a, a publisher who wanted to publish the book, and I knew it takes a year to publish a, a book. You know, now it takes 
10 minutes, but, but, you know, at that time, uh, it was, a, and, and I told him, I said, Al, I have a publisher. They want to do it. He says, no, no, you can't pub publish a book yet. The, the movie's not out. I said, no, no, it'll, it's going to take a year. I said, they will, we'll time it. So when the movie comes out, he got upset, you know, all that I was going to do this. And he says, no, you, I, I, you know, and we actually, you know, I said, I, I gave him, I actually gave him the manuscript to read. I said, I haven't even finished it, but here, read it. Now, something happened between us at that time. And what happened that I can't say for sure that this is what happened, but this is what I think has happened. Al never reads reviews of his work. And he really does it. I respect him for that. Because if every good review, you're also going to get a bad review. And the bad reviews bother you. I know because... I've had books that come out and I have great reviews and I've had some bad reviews and I only remember the bad reviews. So I, I know that that that's true. But in this case, um, uh, Al got, did the, the play Salome in, in uh, Los Angeles at the Wadsworth theater. And it was like a reading, it, you know, they did it as a reading. So they were, they weren't dressed up in costume. They were, you know, the cat and the people were all reading the, the script. So, and he was, he, uh, the, the reviews were saying it was terrible and that he sounded like Jerry Lewis and the, you know, his voice and he'd be, you know, it, just, it was just awful. However, um, I, when he finally did, when he, as he did it, I met Joyce Carol Oates, one of America's leading writers. Yeah. I know. So I said to her, would you like to go see Al do this at the thing? She said, oh, I'd love to. And Al just, Al had his own seats and I had access to it. So anytime I wanted to bring somebody, as long as I didn't tell him because he was, he didn't want to know they were there. I could, I could have that, the two seats. So I would call his assistant and say, I'm bringing Joyce Carol Oates. Okay, save me two tickets. And this was always sold out too. So like nobody could believe I could do that, but I, I had that access. I had Anthony Hopkins. I said, you want to go see Al? Oh yeah, I'd love to see Al do that. Okay, you, can you get tickets? Okay. I met Gay Talese, who's a great writer. One of my favorite writers, journalist. He was at UCLA speaking and I went, I had never even met him. And I went up to him, I said, Gay, you know, I, I have a great admiration for your work and all. We started to talk and I said to him, what are you doing tonight? And he says, what do you mean? I said, you, you, if you like seeing Al Pacino, you can get tickets tonight. It's Saturday night. I said, I think I can. Let me make a phone call. I call, I get the tickets. Gaitley. Okay. So I'm telling you this because I bring people like Gaitley, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Anthony Hopkins to this play. Yes. After the play, I bring them backstage mm -hmm. and they see Al, they embrace him, they talk to him and all. Now, I am writing about all this when I get home, right? This is part of what my book is, you know, is, is the, the whole making of this. And so my book is, a, and then I see Joyce Carol Oates the next day. Let's, she's signing books at UCLA at, a book, at the Festival of Books. And I, you know, I, I just walk over there and as she's, she says, she looks at me, says, can you, can you believe what the, the LA Times wrote about Al and the play? What, what are they crazy? This you know, she, she loved it, but she was commenting on the negative review. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to write about what these really intelligent people had to say about what he did, but they were reacting to what, what, what was being written. So I had to write what some of the reviews said in the book. I had to do that. And that was fine. I think that's total legit journalism. So if you call him a clown or tell him it's terrible, then you have, 
Gay Talese or Joyce Carol Oates saying, or Anthony Hopkins saying, they're fools, this is great. Then you, it makes a better read. I think what happened is Al looked at the manuscript I gave him, mm -hmm. like just skimmed through it, opened the page, read the review that he never read before about him being a clown and never went on to read what, you know, the counter thing was. Yeah. And he got in and he said, I, I don't, I don't want you to publish this book. And I said, no, Al, I said, I said, I won't publish it with the publisher uh, if that's how you feel, mm -hmm. but I better continue to write the book. I, you can't, deny me my creativity and we had a falling out over that mm -hmm. and the book, the book exists the book is called i want you in my movie mm -hmm. and we had we didn't talk for a long time now i've recently reconnected with him he's emailed me and texted me and he says i don't know what happened blah 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 but okay i know what happened <laughs> but that's the nature of the thing it's, it's a so it's a very tough divide mm -hmm. when you are a friend of someone you are also writing about Right. very difficult to do it and to me it's it's like you know I think it should be either or like mm -hmm. I have a relationship with Diane Keaton mm -hmm. I, we become very friendly because of her you know relationship with Al and and then when they split up she hated Al for a long time because it, they broke up but I remember saying to Al do you mind if I write to Diane because I really like her uh, and uh, see if I can still stay in touch with her. He says, I don't think she'll stay in touch with you, but go ahead. So, but she did. She said, I said, hey, Diane, why don't we play paddle tennis, just the two of us? Why don't we get together, you know, whatever. And she agreed, and, and, and that's what happened, you know. And I, but I've never written about Diane in anything. Right. And it's safer that way. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, but when it comes to writing about people that you've gotten to know, you know, like I wrote something about Elliot Gould in, in my book, You Show you Talking to Me. Talking I wrote about that story about how he influenced me. But I tell three things in there that he says was not true. Mm -hmm. He called me up and he said, you know, Larry, we're friends. But what you wrote hurt is very hurtful because it's not true. And I never, this didn't happen that way. It, that, you know, but, and I said, Elliot. It may not have happened that way, but that's the way you once told me it happened. And that's what I'm, I was writing about. But to his credit, we have still stayed friends. He mm -hmm. hasn't gotten, you know, he could have easily cut me off. Kim Basinger, on the other hand, she's a, like an agoraphobic. She's afraid to go out and whatever. Somehow I've interviewed her three or four times. We've stayed friendly mm -hmm. on the phone and email. But, uh, you know, we, always, we talk a lot about, you know, her kids growing up, about Alec, whatever it was. But when I wrote my book, that same book, uh, let me see if I have it here. Yeah, this one, You Talking okay. to Me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I have a story in here about, about the women who, who uh, talk too much mm -hmm. about their loves. And I use Kim Basinger, how much she loved Alec Baldwin and on and on and on. And, and Halle Berry, how much she loved, um, who was the, her, the guy she was with? No, Angelina Jolie and, and Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, oh, you know, I'll bleed for him, I'll do this. And Halle Berry was somebody else, I forget, one of the guys she was with. And they go on and on and on about how wonderful these people are and whatever. Oh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, you know, mm -hmm. she was talking about, so that, that's when I had interviewed And I quote what they said. And then I say, she's no longer married to this one. She's no longer married to this one. She's not, no longer talking to that one. But, the, you know, I said, I said, I, on the other hand, am, you know, still with the same woman uh, for the last 40 or so, 40 or 50 years. And 
I never talk about her, you know, in such a way. You know, I said, I think something's, so what, that was what my point was about my, the lesson I learned. Mm -hmm. Not to talk about, especially if you're a famous person, don't talk about the person you're with so much yeah. as like being the love of your life, the greatest thing, and I'll kill you if, if anybody bothers to hurt you. Well, Kim told me, oh, I can't wait to get your book, Larry. And she bought the book and I have not heard from her since. And I know it's because of what I wrote in there. I said, oh, it's a shame, you know. But I, I feel I have to be true as a journalist and as a writer first. I can't protect everybody. Right. I, I'm not there to do that. If you can still stay friendly with me after I do my work, mm -hmm. great. I, you know, but but don't don't expect me to become your your personal secretary that's not who i am right right and which one of your interviews you would say was the most challenging one for you or startling one something that you never expected would happen well i think robert mitchum in a certain way was um was a failure you know i mean i i uh, i i walked out i walked out of robert mitchum because um he was, he was, uh, I didn't realize that he was as anti-Semitic as he is or was. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, and he was just, you know, I went to see him when he was making a movie called that championship season. He just wanted to meet me. So I met with him and we went into his, uh, um, dressing room and he had himself a sandwich and a, a drink. He didn't offer me even a water, you know, it was just a, one of those things. So I could see he didn't like journalists, you know, and, um, and I would try talking to him and he was very belligerent. And I said, look, I've been with Marlon Brando, but he didn't care. I said, you know, Al Pacino, bah, 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 he didn't care. Whatever name I dropped, it didn't matter to him. And I finally said to him, you know, Mr. Mitchum, why don't we just do an hour with the tape? And if you don't like my questions and if you don't like me i will give you the tape i will walk out and i won't write anything now i've never said that to anybody before or since but i did it then because i thought I, what have i had to lose he wasn't talking anyway he didn't want to and he just looked at me and he said well that's just it isn't it it's that it's that first hour i said i don't know what to say mr mitchum i said i'm just here doing my job and he says well that's what eichmann said isn't it i said excuse me he says yeah that's what Eichmann said. I said, are you comparing doing a Playboy interview with what Adolf Eichmann did to the Jews? He said, same thing. It's the same thing. I didn't know where to go with that. I said, Mr. Mitchum, your, your publicist knows how to get in touch with me. It was nice to meet you. And I walked out. And I went to see Al Pacino that day because I, I was, he was at Anna Strasberg's house, Pacino, and I was meeting him for late lunch or something. And he, I was so upset. You know, I mean, I, I, it really was a disturbing, you know, and because I walked out of a Playboy interview. I've never done that before. And and Al saw, I, I didn't say, he says, what's the matter? I said, oh, nothing. He says, what happened? Did you see Mitchum? I said, yeah. And I tell him the story. He says, that fucking guy, he has no right to say that to you. You know, who does he think he is? Blah, blah, blah. You've done Brando. You've done, you know, uh, governors. You've done this. He says, you know, I, and it was just... He was very helpful, you know what I mean, and to remind me that, the, that it wasn't my fault to walk out. I did the right thing, whatever. Okay, a couple of years go by, I'm doing the Houston book, and I wrote to John Houston. Uh, I, I mean, I, when I was seeing John Houston, I asked John to give me a letter 
telling people to talk to me. And he did. And I sent a whole bunch of letters out, including one to Robert Mitchum, because he was in uh, the Heaven Knows Mr. Allison with, with John and one other. And um, so I had an accident where it had been raining out and I fell off a ladder and I landed on my eye and my broke my hand. My eye almost came out. I was in the hospital for a few days. I get finally get home and I'm home and the phone rings mm -hmm. and I pick the phone up and it says, uh, is this Larry Grobel? I said, yes. This is Robert Mitchum. He didn't remember me. Mm -hmm. He didn't remember me from Playboy. He said, this is Robert Mitchum. I said, uh-huh. I said, oh, Mr. Mitchum, are you calling because of my letter from John Houston? That's why I'm calling. Oh, great. I said, uh, well, listen, Mr. Mitchum, I, I, I just got out of the hospital. I broke my arm. He says, you can come tomorrow. Okay, I'll come tomorrow. And he was in Santa Barbara. I'm in L.A. And at that time, I, when I tell this story now, I look at it, I say, why didn't I hire a cab or, or somebody to take me there, right? I didn't. I could, my, I, my arm was broken. Actually, it was my right arm that was broken. So I was driving left-handed all the way up 90 miles to go see him. My eye is almost is still, you know, half out of my head. And I have to maneuver my tape recorder with my left hand and get everything and get my notes. But I do. I go see him. And we talked about John Houston, and it was fine. You know, I had a good couple of hours with him, mm -hmm. but it was, but it, he never once mentioned Playboy, neither did I. <laughs> so that, so you know, he's a strange dude. But he, that, that was a to me, you know, a failure, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a difficult time. I was uncomfortable with him. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are people who, you know, didn't have, like. Chris O'Donnell wasn't that bright. Every time I'd ask him, now he's, you know, this is when he was, before he was even married, I think. Now he's got four kids. But Chris O'Donnell, I remember, uh, every time I'd ask him a, a philosophical question or a deep question, he would say, you know, my, my dad could answer that question. My, he didn't have, my dad could, I said, I'm not talking to your dad. I said, I'm talking to you. Right. But Freddie Prince Jr., I was up in his bedroom in his house, and I look around, the the shelves and I didn't see a single book and I said where are your books he goes oh I don't read books I said you don't read books <laughs> I said I collect first editions he says to me what's that he didn't even know what a first edition was I said oh my goodness but I went with it you know what I mean I was like okay what do you read he says comic books okay what's your favorite comic book you know we'll go somewhere with it yeah. but you know so some of these people can be surprising um but uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, I did, I once did a very famous uh, jockey, you know, racer, uh, horse jockey, and Willie Shoemaker, one of the most famous who ever lived. And, um, but he didn't know how to, do, to tell what he did. He, I would, I would ask him questions about riding these great horses and winning the Kentucky Derby and this, and and he would say, "Yeah, that was really something." But I, I couldn't pull, couldn't pull out of him anything more. And when I when I finally gave the interview to Playboy, they said, "You know, your questions are better than his answers. We can't use this." And I said, "You're right. I I, I you know what I mean? I realized." That was a failure, and I never published anything about Willie Shoemaker. I, I still had that somewhere in my drawers. Um, so, you know, sometimes those things happen, you know. Uh, the ones that got away that, that I never did, because my reputation preceded me, apparently, mm -hmm. was Alfred Hitchcock, Fred Astaire, and Leonard Bernstein. 
-hmm. All three had agreed to do the interviews. All three backed down at the very last minute. Leonard Bernstein was in Germany. I had my ticket bought. I had prepared for months to talk to him. And uh, the day before, I get a telegram saying, Mr. Bernstein decided he doesn't want to do this, period. I wrote him a really nasty letter, but it didn't work. It, he didn't change his mind. Alfred Hitchcock, the day I was supposed to go see him, I get this call saying, uh, Hitchcock uh, doesn't want to do it. I found out later from a person I knew who was in the room with Hitchcock and uh, that day, and he, he said, uh, Hitchcock said, oh, I, I have, I'm, a, I'm busy in the afternoon. I'm doing an interview with this, with the, for Playboy magazine. Who's your interviewer? Larry Grobe, Lawrence Grobel, whatever. Oh no, you don't want to do that. He, he's, he asked too deep a questions. He's going to say, oh really? Okay, let's forget it. And they, they canceled it because someone told them I asked too, you know, too deep questions. Yeah. I lost that one. And then the other one was uh, Bernstein. Oh, Fred Astaire. Would have loved to talk to Fred Astaire. I, I wore a tux, I got a tuxedo. I went to the AFI, American Film Institute, uh, a tribute to Fred Astaire. I prepared again, watched all the movies. And then what happened was his wife, she was a jockey, I think, but his wife uh, found out that she, he was gonna do a Playboy interview and she didn't like Playboy. So she said, no, no, you're not allowed, you can't do it. Uh, and so they got back to me, the publicist says, uh, Fred uh, can't do the Playboy interview, but if you want to talk to him for an airline magazine, that's okay. I said, no, I don't want to talk to him for an airline magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's not what I'm prepared to do. Um, and I lost that one. So those are three I just lost, you know, that didn't happen. And I, I'm always sorry they didn't because mm -hmm. it was a lot of preparation. You know, it takes months to prepare for any of these things. Yeah. Luckily, Playboy pays me, you know, something not the full amount but they they paid me for my work because i i asked them to i said you can't i said i can't help these things you know uh, but it's i have to keep my family alive <coughs> anyway right right and whom would you like to interview in the present times well i hate to say this because i dislike the man so much but uh donald trump i i uh, knew it somehow <laughs> i've been I mean, following your posts on Facebook. yeah <laughs> i dislike that man so much but i but the problem is i i know see i bobby knight the mm -hmm. the uh the uh coach the former coach of indiana who got kicked out um and attacked me actually punched me when we you know when we talked but i that interview is a classic interview and I put it at the back of my book on the art of the interview because I think it's it's very revealing. Yeah. But I think Donald Trump and Bobby Knight are very much alike the way they think, who they think they are and all that. So I think I, you know, I think with if I ever did Trump, Trump would walk out. Uh, Trump would, you know, because I would I would work my way around it. I would with Trump his ego is so big, you have to keep flattering him, mm -hmm. which I mm -hmm. hate to do, but I would you 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 did great things you did you know i would talk about all the greatness that he thinks he did however you know maybe with the virus you could have done that 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 you know, i you know you'd have to sneak in your real questions in there and eventually he he's not a stupid man he would he would realize you know where's this guy going you know so it would be tricky it would be tricky but i would take the challenge i would do that and the same thing with some you know I would not want to interview Rudy Giuliani because I think he's a fool right now and, and you know, just a, a vampire, a disgusting man. Um, 
Jared Kushner, yeah, I could see doing him. You know, I'm just looking at the bad guys. Uh, Ted Cruz, I just wouldn't even want to be around him. Josh Hawley, though, who was a Harvard graduate, Stanford graduate, and he's a, a slimy guy, I would do him because I think, you know, he's at least got some intelligence. I'd like to see why he, you know, is the way he is. Um, actors, mm, I'm not sure uh, right now, is there anybody that, oh, Woody Harrelson. I'd like to do Woody Harrelson be, because I'd like to get my script to Woody Harrelson. I think he could play Marlon Brando really well. So that would be alternative motive for that one. Uh, scientists. Well, Dr. Fauci has been interviewed so much, you know, that I don't think there's too much more to go with him. Um, I, I, I have to think about, you know, who else? I, I mean, I, Cormac McCarthy is a novelist. Uh, uh, Don DeLillo. Those are two great American novelists who, don't talk to people. Mm -hmm. Thomas Pynchon is still alive. Of course, mm -hmm. if you could get to Thomas Pynchon, that would be amazing. That'd be like doing Salinger. Um, so, you know, I, I guess in every field, there'd be somebody that I could come up with, you know, what athlete would I want to do? I mean, LeBron James is a great athlete and he's got a lot of political activism going. So I think that's wonderful, you know. Um, Mike Tyson is sort of like a, you know, he's, he's had his time, but he's still a really interesting character, you know, I mean, so, you know, there's, you know, you know, people who have reached the heights and then blown it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then come back in a different way are always interesting people, you know, right. I guess, you know, you just, you just look for who, who might be really interesting. Of course you want, you know, Charles, you know, Prince Charles, this poor guy, never going to be king because <laughs> she's going to outlive him you know that you know the queen doesn't talk i don't know what you get out of her but you know charles is a smart guy you know but he screwed up with diana and all this stuff you know so i, I think charles would be really interesting um what's her name uh angela merkel she's she's leaving Mm -hmm. uh, I hear. I mean, I think she really loved Obama and really hated Trump. You know, and I'd, I'd like to get a, a political leader talking about that kind of stuff. You yeah, know, that might yeah. be interesting. Yeah. And then the bad guys. You know, Erdogan and um, Kim Jong Il. If you could get to these people, I actually get them to talk. You know, without. I mean, you know, the, Putin. My God, what what you could do with Putin if he would agree? You know, this. But my my condition would be that you, you can't, I, I need time, I need yeah. time. I can't do it in 10 minutes, it's not worth it, you know? You know who I wanted to do when I, uh, there were two people I wanted to do. Uh, one was Idi Amin when he was alive in Uganda. And, and Idi Amin was a bad man. I think he had syphilis too, but he was a crazy guy. And uh, I said to Playboy, let me go, let's see if we can, he'll do it. And he might have, but Playboy said, you know, he, he's too erratic, he could kill you. We don't want to be responsible for that. I said, well, why don't we just announce it to the New York Times or to the papers around the world that I'm going to be doing an interview with him? You know, so right. we make it public. So uh, it makes me safer. They said, no, he's, well, he's crazy. You're not, you know, that he's, he wouldn't care about that. If you ask him the wrong question, he could chop your head off. So they, they wouldn't let me go ahead and do that one. So that didn't happen. But then I wanted to do, I wanted to do, to say that, I had spent secret time with Elvis Presley over the years, 
Nobody knew. I, would, I was going to write this whole, it was going to be a, a, a hoax that, that I, I would describe how I went into the backs of eight yeah, things yeah. of Graceland and we talked and I was going to, and I was going to take everything Elvis ever said. So I would not make a lie out of it, but right. I would take all the things I could find and put questions around it and look like I did this interview with Elvis Presley. And I thought, we'll get so much reaction and then we can reveal later. <laughs> you know, it would be so much fun to do that. Playboy, they liked the idea for a minute. It. And then they said, you know, well, you know, there is, <laughs> could ruin right. their reputation. So we never got to do that one. Right. I should have done that. I should, I should still do that. I could do that as a book and say, I'm, you know, you know, just be fun to do. <laughs> yeah. And sir, would you say that these interviews really helped you make sense of life? I don't know if they make me, that's a hard one to say because I think I have the sense of life with or without the interviews. Mm -hmm. I think what they've done is enriched my life a great deal. I think I always said, and I still feel that way, although I'm not doing those long interviews because I don't have an outlet anymore to do them. But um, uh, I always thought no matter what I did, if I, if I won a jackpot and, uh, you know, lottery and I got a, you know, somebody just won $78 million the other day. Someone's going to win 98 million today if they got, they get, what would you do with that money? You know, what would you do? That's insane. But even if I had, if I won a hundred million dollars and I, you know, could do anything I want for the rest of my life, obviously, Mm -hmm. I would still want to do two Playboy type interviews a year because they're fascinating to do. And they take me out of me and put me into you. You know what I mean? And, 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 And allow me, allow me to go in a place that no other kind of conversation allows you to go. If I meet you now, right, we're talking and we can be very polite and everything else. But if I ask you about your sex life, Mm -hmm. you might be offended. You should be offended, right? You have no right to ask me that. If I ask you about your, your, the money you earn, if I ask you about your taxes, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if I ask you about previous, did did you ever have, uh, uh, an operation of any sort? Did you ever yeah. have an abortion? Did mm-hmm. you ever do this? Did you ever do that? Whatever it would be, anything that's really, really personal to you. Right. If I brought it up, you ha- have every right to look at me like, who do you think you are? And why are you asking me this? Mm-hmm. And please get out of my house. But if you come doing a Playboy interview and you do the same questions, they will not kick you out. They may say, I don't want to go there. But they won't kick you out and you'll continue to talk. That's the only time you can ask these kinds of questions. You know, I have been to parties or, you know, where I'd meet people. And if I start asking people, you know, what do you do? do do?" Somebody inevitably will walk over to us and say, watch out for Larry. He's like a can opener, right? And I I hate that, you know, and I realize my reputation has preceded me. I can't go away, get away with that. Mm -hmm. So I don't do that anymore. When I meet you, I, 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 I do small talk. Oh, you know, a little bit. What yeah. do you do? What do, you do? Yeah. But I don't go into any kind of depth because yeah. I feel it's intruding and I feel I know how to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. I, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a little different. But that's what I, I do treasure about doing those deep interviews. It gave me an opportunity to really think about the human condition in a sense, a person's human condition, mm-hmm. to go as far as I can with somebody and uh, to try to shape it, you mm-hmm. know, not just to get it, but to shape it into a life form. And that was really fascinating to me. Right, right. And so 
being a freelance journalist being a freelance writer how has that empowered you because you did mention uh, this element of freedom in your early days in your childhood how has mm-hmm. being a freelancer really empowered you what kind of control as you talk about control having that control in our interviews how would you say that this being in this spot really helped you uh, become a stronger journalist well well I, I i can't rate myself as a journalist you know uh, i mean i i think there are a lot better journalists than i am you know and, and you know i don't i would never you know i mean i guess as an interviewer i am considered something special but um but that's only one part of journalism you know i mean mm-hmm. you know so i i but i think what what the the freelance life to me is the best kind of life you could live i've always believed that because i i have experienced it and my life has been very good and it's been very rich and i've been able to jump out of airplanes yeah go up in gliders you know uh uh hang out with Lu- luciano pavarotti for, for you know and and uh and sit on the toilet when dal pacino's taking a bath i mean i've been able to do all kinds of things as a freelance writer um that i could go to marlon brando's island for 10 days and then go back to the island when it's become you know the brando hotel a yeah. resort you pay 3000 euros a night to go there i can go there uh, I've gone there twice. I don't pay to go there. They want me to come there. And then I talk about Brando and they, you know, I mean, it's like, it's amazing. So there are certain things about being a freelance person that has allowed me to go around the world, to see the world, to be with people that I can't, normally would never be with. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, people enjoy my company now because I have stories about all these people. So, you know, there is something positive about all of that you know i can't deny any of that mm-hmm. I, and i don't the, and there's really nothing negative about being a freelance person except for the fact that you need to cut it's like you're reapplying for a job every single time assignment right. you know you live by assignments mm-hmm. there if an editor doesn't want your work and you can't find another editor you don't do it there i once did a when i was you know still even when i started working for playboy I would write of a hundred queries for ideas I would have. I'd send it to all these different magazine editors. I found that less than 10% responded. 90% of the time you get rejected Mm -hmm. for your ideas. Of those 10%, maybe one or two will give you an assignment. And then of that assignment, sometimes they don't like what you wrote and they reject it. And so, you know, it's a tough life because you know especially when you're trying to raise a family and you know you want to live in a decent place how do you do it you know i don't know i I say to my wife sometimes i don't know how i did what i did you know and how you allowed me to do what i do because you know like you never complained you never discouraged me you know many other wives would say no i want to get a new car i want to do you know i want to live differently uh you know Mm -hmm. let's travel I would say, okay, let's travel. Let me, I'll find an article to write. We'll travel, and that's where we'll go. With, with you know, other people just say, oh, you know, they they have enough money and they buy a ticket and they they stay in the nice hotels. I can do. I've, I've stayed in some of the best hotels and eaten the best food, but I don't pay for it often because it's it's part of the thing I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. So you know, that that's the the trade-off is that when you get older, uh, all my friends now who are retired. 
uh, have a you know money coming in from the, where they work. That that's that's you know I don't have that. I have no you know I've never you know I don't have a golden parachute. You know I get social security yeah, but you know everything else is just still what comes out of here. You know and uh, when my when my mind starts going, so so will my income. Um, the two the, the two books I wrote the the, the late the lately is all right. This is the new one. <laughs> and this one is the other one last year. Yeah. Short story. All this book of short stories, mostly my dreams, crazy dreams I've had, you know, like, yes. so, but it, it turned into story. I didn't know that I was going to be a short story writer. I never really, now that's what I'm doing. I've written 60 stories, 35 in one and 25 in the other that I've published. Now I've written six more. And I'm gonna, you know, probably do another book of stories. I thought I was gonna write a novel, but but it looks like these stories they just keep coming out of me. It's a great time in my life. Mm-hmm. I love writing these stories. Um, do, is anybody reading them? Uh, uh, very difficult. I'm not even trying to publish my stories because mm-hmm. the magazine world has just shrunk down. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't exist the way it did when I was working as much on my magazine stuff. And the short story market, you know, these small magazines, I don't know who reads them. So I just said, you know what, I'll just write them. I'll put them out myself. If anybody wants to read them, if somebody in India wants to read my work, great. If someone in Japan, we, you know, it's exi- it, they're there, you know, but how does people know about them? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe through you, am- other people will see it, you know, yeah. that'll be great. Because yeah. I have 29 books now. 29 books that's you know I'm, I'm amazed you know that, that that I do but I have the f- freedom to do whatever I want and mm-hmm. to write whatever I want and I don't have somebody telling me don't do this it's it's not right or it doesn't work it works for me <laughs> right, right. so also tell us a bit about your teaching experience at UCLA oh I love teaching I like teaching as much as I do writing and mm-hmm. and I I I taught to UCLA in uh, 2001. I was asked by the chairman of the UCLA uh, English department mm-hmm. to come to lunch. So I went to lunch and he said, there are 1400 English majors at UCLA. And he's worried about what they're gonna do for jobs after they graduate. If they're not gonna be teachers, what are they gonna do? He says, you somehow have survived an education majoring in English at UCLA. And uh, can you teach a a course on survival? That was what he asked, survival. And I said, I don't know, let me think about it. You know, I was like surprised. And I remember going back and that afternoon, I I went to this tennis club that Al Pacino belonged to. And we were sitting there and and I said, I just had this offer to teach at UCLA. He says, really? I said, yeah, but I don't know if I'm going to do it. He says, you got to do it. You got to do it. He says, I'll I'll be your first guest. I said, really? He said, because I knew Al would never do that, you know, normally. Yeah, yeah, I'll come. It'll be great. I said, okay, let me, you know, so let me come up with an idea what to teach. So I thought about all the different things I could teach and it boiled down to, the art of the interview, <laughs> you know, what, I, what I've been doing. And so I came up with a plan. I, I gave it to UCLA. They said, okay. Uh, I, I put together, I, I said, I, I want to have students, they have to apply to get into the class. That was my thing. I didn't want to just have any old students. I wanted serious students. Mm-hmm. And so 60 or 70 people wrote essays, applied. I took 15. 
12 or 15 of them. Mm -hmm. And then Al Pacino came my first class. It was amazing. Wow. And uh, so the, or oh, the second class, I prepared them for the first, you know, and then he came. Um, and then um, I, I got, I love these kids, you know I mean? They were so smart and they were so, you know, they were so hungry. And um, so the very first class was so good that after the 10 week class, so many of them said, can we keep going? Can we go? So I went back to the head of the department. I said, can we do a second part of this? Can they, you know, give credit? They said, okay. So I, I gave them, they, they were able to take the an, uh, extension of the class. So I had the same students for 20 weeks, you know, and I, we did, and we really got, got a lot done. And these, a lot of them have, are journalists now. They're all out there working. It was great. You know, so I, I was a wonderful experience. And then I said, after about two or three years of just doing The Art of the Interview, and I was getting famous people to come. Anthony Kiedis came, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Diane Keaton, and Jaimin Hansu, and, you know, um, uh, I had publicists like Paul Block come, and I had Mike Medavoy, who was a producer, won 16 Oscars. They came. So I had very important people, Farrah Fawcett came um, to, uh, to the class, and um, Steve Martin came. So, so the students were getting these incredible interviews with these people and it was really wonderful and nobody else knew about it. You know, it was very, it was kept very, I did it at night, you know, I had the class at night. Anyway, then I, I said, you know, uh, the, every time I mention a certain writer like uh, Ron Rosenbaum or, or uh, Tom Genode or Gay Talese, or, you know, they don't know who I'm talking about, Either Joan Didion, Mm -hmm. Norman Mailer, they don't know their journalism. The only person they heard of was Hunter Thompson, you know, so I said, oh. so I said, how can you graduate English students if they don't know some of the great writers of nonfiction? So he, I said, I said, why don't we, could I do a class on the literature of journalism? Okay, just like that. I didn't have to go before a board or anything. That was great. So I came up with a class and I did that one. Then I came up with another one because I thought, well, how can they make money? How can students make money these days? Journalism is not going to pay everybody. Right. But, but writing for movies, writing for television, you can make a good living. How do I try tie that into journalism? So I said, maybe I could do uh, from, from articles to film, not books. But just any, anything was a magazine article. Saturday Night Fever was a all about Eve. You know, these, a lot of movies became, uh, you know, started as magazine articles. So I found uh, about two dozen articles that I thought, you know, would make, that made good movies or decent movies. And I taught this class where the students, I, I would give them the article to read. Then I would give them the, uh, then I'd show them the movie. Mm -hmm. Then I give them a review of the movie, uh, and then I would ask them as a paper to compare and contrast the article to the movie. What was left in? What was left out? Why? Mm -hmm. And so they got to think about it from different angles. And that was a very good class, and students loved it because they got to watch 10 movies. <laughs> that was a great class. So, so that was the one. So that was my third class. And the fourth class was the honor department asked me, would I want to teach something in the honors department? I said, I'd love to teach a class on uh, 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 memoir writing, you know, mm -hmm. um, autobiography and memoir, because I, 
And they said, okay. So I tried that. And then I had students from all over, not just the English department, but science and, you know, geography, whatever it was. And so, and that was my favorite class. That became my favorite because the students write about themselves. And so I did that for 10 years. I did that till 2011. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was there was a, a financial crisis in the school mm-hmm. and they had to cut back. A lot of the departments had to cut back a lot of money. So when it came down to my seminars, my I, UCLA had required two seminars that you had to take to grad, you know, part of your major. Mm-hmm. They decided they'll, they'll eliminate the seminars as a requirement. Mm-hmm. So that made the seminars less important. And then when they had to cut back on a few, the, the, the last one in, the last teacher in was the first teacher out. And I was one, you know, even though I'd been there now 10 years, most of the teachers, they had been there 15, 20 years. They mm-hmm. were, you know, I mean, they'd been, they'd been there forever, 10. So uh, they eliminated my classes, which was such a shame. I felt I, I had no idea that was going to happen. And then I also found out that if you, after you teach 10 years as a lecturer, uh, you become a tenured lecturer. They can't get rid of you. So they had to get rid of me at that time or they would have had to keep me. Okay, so I understood that was what, you know, I mean, that's politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2017, I I went back to UCLA and I taught a class, an interview class actually, Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the summer. And then this last summer I taught uh, the memoir class. It was very successful. As a matter of fact, in about 20 more minutes, 40 mm-hmm. more minutes, I, I'm, I'm meeting with one of the students that was in the class that had to write a, her mm-hmm. memoir and, didn't, and then she got sick. So she owed it to me. So she's going to read it to me today. Oh. So, that's, so that's, you know, that's been my um, journey with, with, with teaching. I love teaching. I would like to keep teaching. I think I have something to offer. But I I wanted I got spoiled teaching at UCLA because they not only they pay well but they um, gave me complete freedom. Mm-hmm. Nobody bothered. Nobody ever came to my class. Nobody asked me what I was doing. Nobody asked to see a curriculum. Nothing. And that you know. And now if you you know I don't want to go through a lot of hoops and you know it's the same thing. I'm I, I'm I'm very independent and so I don't want to feel like I have to you know go through a lot of stuff. I know what I'm worth. I know what I can do, and I, I I know if you give me the chance, I'll I'll succeed. Maybe that's what it takes to be a good interviewer or a good teacher. I don't know. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, sir. And on this note, sir, how do you look back on your journey today, and what is it that you're really looking forward to in the times to come? Well, I guess. What gives me the greatest joy right now is working with my grandson. Uh, he's five years old and uh, he's five and a half. And he's, he had, uh, when he was two, he had a disease. He got cancer. Uh, and um, it, was, it was very emotional. And my wife and I drove up, they're up in the San Francisco area. And we drove up every time he had to go through his chemo, we would try to be there. And it was a six hour drive, seven hour drive to go there. And then we spend, you know, and I'd be in the hospital with him. Uh, and he's a brave little kid, you know, going through that, that from two to four, he went to for two years. The first two times he had these treatments didn't work. The third time we hope it has, he has, he's been okay since the last year and a half, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know. But it turns out that this little kid, uh, 
has artistic talent, as you have seen on, on Facebook. Um, it's quite striking because I have another grandchild mm -hmm. who is a normal five and a half year old who draws little figures mm -hmm. and whatever, you know, and, and it's cute, but that's what children do. They don't do portraits. They don't do what right. he's doing. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to encourage it. I'm trying to, you know, and then because of the pandemic, my daughter asked me if I would do spend, I, I'm Gigi, Gigi and Baba's grandpa and grandma. So I do Gigi time with him. And it's an hour and a half, sometimes uh, two or three times a week. And we draw, we sing, we dance, we, we, I read to him. He reads to me now. He's learning to read. So um, I, I get great joy out of being with him and mm -hmm. out of knowing that I'm affecting him, hopefully in a positive way. Um, and sometimes I'm at odds with my daughter because she says, don't talk to him about this. Don't tell him to do. He, I said, I want you to do a cover of my book for on monsters that I'm doing. And he's going, don't ask him to do monsters. He's having bad dreams. I, you know, so we're always fighting about that. But, but, um, you know, that's one of the things that I see as part of my future mm -hmm. is, is dealing with him and with my granddaughter. I, I want, you know, they've just, unfortunately, because of the COVID, they moved out of LA and they moved up to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so, Oh, you know, it's a, it's tougher to see them. We do have these Zoom things, so that's good. Um, but, uh, and then just, I want to just keep writing. I have this novel that I, I got a National Endowment of the Arts grant for years ago, and I never finished it. I'm trying, I'd like to get back to it. I have now, I, I'm, because of the stories I'm writing now, I'm saying I would like to do, finish another book of stories this year. So mm -hmm. it's only January, so I'm giving myself till next December. And if I can write 30 more stories, that's great. You know, sometimes, I mean, I've written five stories in a week, week and a half. So, you know, sometimes it happens fast. Sometimes it takes forever. Um, I, you just don't know, but it, it all goes well. I, and health for my wife and I, I, I just hope that we maintain our health because that's, you don't know, you know, yeah. at our age, my legs cramp up with for no reason, you know, and uh, that, you know, where, where's that coming from? Or sometimes this finger, is like arthritic right mm -hmm. or my thumb they're right here mm -hmm. i feel it but then uh, i hope it doesn't get worse i hope i can continue to write that's all so you know life thank god has been a very very good journey for me i i've I, i've traveled most of the world i've been in africa i've been in asia i've been in you know india i've been in japan i've, I've been through south america i've been you know i spent time in colombia and uh brazil so, you know, I, I can't complain about about the life I've led and the people I've come in contact with. Um, so I just hope it keeps going. And I <laughs> Definitely, sir. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been such a great joy. And I have learned so much in this, uh, you know, one and a half hour or two hour conversation which would otherwise have taken, you know, maybe 20 years. The kind of learning that I've gained from this conversation is <laughs> immense. Sometimes I feel I may have talked too much now or I may have not have given you any answers, but I've been very honest with you. Yes. And uh, I didn't hold back. So I hope that, uh, you know, it, it works That was the best part. That was the best part. And I wouldn't have got this opportunity again, you know, sometime soon. So I had to make the most of it. I had to listen to you as much as I could because otherwise, yes, I would also need a month or maybe six months to sit down with you right. and understand <laughs> your journey. So yeah, that's how it is. Okay. But
Thank you once again, sir. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Good luck. Don't forget to check out the books by Lawrence Krobel on Amazon. The latest one being Schemers, Dreamers, Cheaters, Believers. It is a collection of short stories written during the pandemic. And before you go, please do show some love and support to the Story Bar podcast by subscribing on Apple and Spotify. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Much love.